Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Joyce Napier is away today. Tonight, North America under surveillance. The presence of this surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says his government is confident the Chinese balloon flying over North America is conducting surveillance. How will Canada respond? We'll talk to Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino on that, plus gun control back down. Today's humiliating climb down that we have forced Trudeau to make is a temporary pause in his, his plan to ban hunting rifles. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev is taking a victory lap, but how soon will the Liberals still push forward with a new plan? We'll ask that of the minister as well. Plus, cash on the table. At the federal level, this is a time of real fiscal constraint. Ahead of Tuesday's first minister's meeting, Christian Freeland sat down with her provincial counterparts and warned federal finances are tight. Will the provinces be able to reach a funding agreement with the Prime Minister? We'll talk to Ontario's Finance Minister. But first... Yesterday, the Department of Defence announced that we had detected and were tracking a high-altitude surveillance balloon that remains over the continental United States. We continue to track and monitor the balloon closely. We're confident this is a Chinese surveillance balloon. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken saying he is confident the massive balloon seen floating over the United States is a Chinese surveillance balloon. Sources tell CTV News that same balloon flew over Alberta and Saskatchewan this past weekend. We're told American jets were sent to investigate and determined there were no weapons on board. There were, however, high-resolution cameras. None of this was made public until the balloon crossed over into the United States and was hovering over Montana. China has claimed it's a weather balloon. But that claim has been refuted by Blinken. A statement from Canada's Department of National Defense and Canada's Armed Forces says Canada's intelligence agencies are working with American partners and continue to take all necessary measures to safeguard Canada's sensitive information from foreign intelligence threats. So why didn't Canadian officials inform residents of the Prairie Provinces about this until now? Earlier today, I spoke to Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. I asked him questions about the balloon and the government's climb down on its controversial amendments to gun control legislation. Have a listen. And joining me now is Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Minister, thanks so much for taking the time. I want to start right away with that balloon that was seen over Canada and now the U.S. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he is confident that this is a Chinese surveillance balloon. Sources tell CTV News that this balloon flew over Canada on the weekend. Why is it that we are only hearing about it right now? Well, the first thing I want to assure you and all Canadians is that um, we will do everything in our power to protect our sovereignty, our airspace, and our national security. We have a robust uh, set of agencies and departments uh, deployed around the clock who are ever vigilant against any threats to any of those aforementioned principles. Uh, As you heard my uh, colleague, Minister Anand, uh, say, we are Um, always going to be eyes wide open about potential threats, and we are going to continue to work very, very closely with our allies, including the United States, uh, to protect uh, Canadian airspace and more broadly the continent. Tell me more about that work. I mean, were you you one of the ministers that was briefed on this situation this past weekend? 
Well, I get intelligence briefings all the time, and for obvious reasons, uh, the details of those briefings are sensitive and classified so that we can protect national security. But I assure you that uh, we remain in contact with our officials. Uh, we remain in contact with our colleagues across government, including uh, the Minister of uh, National Defense, uh, Transport, uh, Global Affairs. Uh, there's an entire community within government so that we can take a whole-of-government approach, and we will always do whatever is necessary uh, to protect our sovereignty, our airspace, and our national security. So as part of that, whatever is necessary, what was the decision behind not shooting it down when it was in Canadian airspace? Well, again, I want to tell you and reassure you that uh, those briefings will always uh, be ongoing, uh, but they are classified for the obvious reason that we don't want to compromise uh, any of our operations. Uh, that is a well-established principle. Uh, the most important thing, I think, for your viewers to know and to be assured of is that um, we are eyes wide open 24-7 on, on threats all the time. And we deploy a range of techniques uh, to protect our airspace, to protect our, our land, our water, our sovereignty, our national security. That is our top priority. Minister, I have no doubt that that is your top priority, but it was only when it was over American airspace that it was made public. Why was it not made public earlier so that Canadians could be reassured of their safety? That is precisely what we are doing now. But you didn't and do it before, Minister, with all due respect. I guess I wanted to jump in here because it was over Canadian airspace. Why didn't we hear about it when it was over Canadian airspace? The, the timing of, of the briefings uh, and when we receive information is always going to be a matter of sensitivity because of the tactics and the techniques and the tools that we use to protect Canadian national security and sovereignty. Uh, and when we are able to do so, we share information so that we can be transparent and upfront with Canadians about how we are protecting them. But the most important thing, and the bottom line is, is that we are ever vigilant against all foreign threats and will continue to be because this is our top priority. I, I just want to push back on that for a second. Is it really being transparent if we only heard about it a week later when it was out of Canadian airspace? We have to strike that balance and make sure that we are not in any way compromising our operations and the techniques that we use uh, to protect uh, Canadians. Uh, but we're upfront about what we need to do and when we can share that information, we do. And we work closely with our allies on that front as well. And we'll continue to do so, so that we can protect our perimeter, our sovereignty, and our national security. I just want to point out that that information was not shared by the Canadian government at first. It was shared by the American government. But I want to move on for a second. Sources tell CTV News that there were a total of four balloons that had left China. Is it your assessment that China is spying on Canada and our allies? As I said, we receive information and briefings all the time about potential threats uh, from a range of hostile actors. We remain in constant contact with our officials on that front. Uh, we are a, a part of a team uh, of national security partners uh, within government. As I said, I work very closely with the ministers of national defense, Transport Canada and Global Affairs who coordinate our efforts with our allies. And we will always deploy whatever measures are necessary uh, to protect the Canadian uh, national interest. I want to move on now to those amendments that your government has decided to withdraw from the gun control legislation. The Prime Minister defended those over and over again. You defended them over and over again. So what has changed to make your government withdraw these amendments now? 
Well, first, this is an emotional issue, and I've uh, reached out and will continue to reach out to Canadians, uh, no matter which uh, perspective they come to when it comes to reducing gun violence. And we owe it to all Canadians, and especially victims and survivors, uh, to get these amendments, which are targeted at completing the work around assault-style firearms, the type of guns which have been used in Portapic and Truro, at Polytechnique and elsewhere, out of our communities because they have no place. That having been said, um, we recognize that there needed to be more work done on both the substance of the amendments as well as consultation. And we have to accept responsibility for that. And that is why today we withdrew those amendments. That's part of our effort to uh, extend a branch to our colleagues in Parliament, to reset the narrative so that we can get this right. And that is precisely what we're committed to doing. So you're accepting the responsibility for getting this wrong then at first? Well, we have to. Uh, we've got to ex accept the responsibility of the concerns uh, that have been expressed around consultation. But I'm focused on charting out a course forward. Um, I've met with victims and survivors, and there is just no way to express what we owe to them. They have been patient. They are um, showing, I think, an ongoing support for the government, which we need. And frankly, the ongoing conversations that I'm having with gun owners and First Nations and Inuit communities across the country is also essential so that their lived experiences can be woven into this bill. Um, we need to do that on the basis of relationships that are rooted in trust and in respect and listening and that is my commitment, and that is our government's commitment, and we owe it to Canadians to do the additional work that is necessary, and we will get there. I guess the question is, though, why didn't you do that work before, when you presented these amendments beforehand? Look, there is a continuum of consultation that goes on, but when concerns were raised with regards to um, the language around um, and the models that were included in the amendments, we said that we would take the time that was necessary to continue those conversations. No, I understand I, that, Minister. I guess my question is, why didn't you consult Indigenous communities? Why didn't you consult hunters? Why didn't you do all this consultation before bringing all these amendments to committee? We've got to accept responsibility that that part needed to be done better, and that's why I had been engaging with First Nations, Indigenous, and Métis communities so that we can get it right and do that work consistent with the principles of reconciliation, and that's got to be rooted in respect. That's our commitment, and to work with opposition colleagues. I believe there are some opposition parties with whom we share a common cause to address the issue of, of, of those guns that have been used in mass killings, and there's no, no shortcut around it. You've got to be prepared to do the work and that's what we're going to do. And we do owe it to victims and survivors. I met with a number of them this morning. They're very concerned about maintaining this bill, as am I. Um, but I've asked them uh, and, uh, you know, obviously have just the utmost respect for them uh, to keep faith. Uh, they've shown tremendous patience. And we've got to bring Canadians along on what is a very, very important issue. So why should they keep faith in your government? If you had this issue now where you had to withdraw these amendments, why should people like Paulie Soussouvien and people from that group like the, one of the survivors, Natalie Provost, why should she believe you that you will be able to come with new amendments that will actually pass and do the work that they are asking you to do? Look, it's a big ask. Uh, and obviously I have had some very um, you know, difficult and emotional conversations with them. But my short answer to your question is that my work is rooted in integrity uh, my work and our government's work has to be rooted in trust and respect uh, for them, uh, for the sacrifices that they have made. It has to be rooted in trust and respect for all Canadians. And that is the best way forward, is to extend a branch, to reset the narrative, 
and to make sure that we do the additional work that is necessary so that we can get it right. And that is our commitment, and we will continue to do what we can to get there. But Minister, with all due respect, you promised to get it right the first time. Why should they believe you now this time? Uh, listen, you have to do this work, um, and it's not easy. As I said at the outset, it's emotional, and I accept that. And I think we you know, always have to be prepared uh, to do better. And that is precisely what the government is doing today. So I think we can rally and unite around the common cause that there's been far too much grief and suffering as a result of gun violence. And by uniting around that cause, I do see a path forward. Uh, we've extended a, a branch, I think, to our opposition colleagues. We want to work with them and we'll keep at it. And we owe it to, the, to everybody to, to continue to do this work, not to give up and to forge ahead. And uh, we'll do that uh, with uh, respect and humility and trust. And that's how I think we can complete it. Given how long victims' rights groups have been waiting for this, what is your timeline to get this done? Well, look, I am uh, going to reject forecasting timelines. I think it's more important right now. To, I know, Minister, uh, but they've been waiting for so long. They've been doing this work for so many decades. I mean, how much longer are you expecting them to wait? Look, I, I understand the anxiety. Um, I've, I've spent time uh, grieving with them. Um, but what's more important than putting a specific date on a calendar is that we get the relationships right and we get the dialogue right and we get the good faith right. And that's where we're starting uh, today, as I said, extending a branch, resetting the narrative and continuing on a path towards uh, doing this work. And I've, I'm running out of time, but I just want to ask before the end of this session, will you bring forth new amendments before the end of this session? Look, I, I again, I'll, I'll underline, I understand the eagerness and the anxiety. Um, I'm going to work around the clock. My team is, our government will. Uh, but let's make sure that we uh, do the consultation, do the good faith work, and then we'll get closer to providing some, uh, some timelines as we make some progress. And that is my sincere hope. Minister, we're going to have to leave it there. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Listening to that conversation was Nathalie Provost. She survived the Polytechnique massacre, and she's also a spokesperson for gun control advocacy group Poly Susuvier. Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time being with us. First off, I want to ask you what you thought of the Minister Mendicino's explanation for why they are making this move today. Um, I'm not in their position. I'm Great. It's a big deception for me and for all of those involved in for gun control. But uh, they uh, didn't succeed to explain correctly what uh, has been tabled in December. So they had to, uh, to, 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 to make a step backwards in order to step further the next time. That's what I understand. You had said in a statement earlier today that it's clear that misinformation propagated by conservative MPs and the gun lobby has won. However, by his own admission, Minister Mendicino says that more discussions, including with indigenous communities, are needed. Do you think that more discussions will get this le legislation to the place that you want it to be? Uh, the legislation is broader than what then the, the 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 question of the amendment. So maybe they have to have they need to have a discussion on the old uh, bill. But regarding the amendment, for sure it needs to be correctly explained, uh, and uh, it it needs to be clear 
why this amendment, this amendment was correct, complete, and was not um, against hunting rifles. And um, for sure, for me, it's an emotional debate. But the, the question of the amendment is a technical debate, is a complex issue, and it, it needs clarity, it needs explanation, it needs, it needs charts. We're engineers and police, and most of us are, or families of engineers. And we know that it's, it, it's not an easy, an, an easy issue. Um, so maybe it, that was missing for every one of us. Uh, so because it was not there, uh, the, the gun lobby was able to just say, it's awful, it must not be done. It goes against hunting rifles, that which is not true, but hasn't been correctly explained. So given what we'd seen, what happened with this set of amendments, do you have faith that this government will get it right this time? That's the only thing we have, faith. And they have the power. They are the governing party right now. Uh, they have to act with leadership. They have to do what they promise us and Canadians that they will do. So we'll be there to remind it. And we'll be there watching as well. Member of Gun Control and Advocacy Group, Police Soussouvien, Nathalie Provost, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We appreciate this. And please, please, let me just say that we're not fighting for victims. We're not fighting for survivors. We're fighting for the safety of all Canadians. Mm -hmm. Nathalie Provo, thank you so much for adding that as well. I appreciate that. Coming up, Canada's finance ministers gathered in Toronto today with federal finance minister Christian Freeland. It comes as this country faces major economic challenges in the form of the United States Inflation Reduction Act. Did ministers manage to come up with a counter to Biden's tax credits? We'll speak to Ontario's finance minister next on Power Play. At the federal level, this is a time of real fiscal constraint. We know that one of the most important things the federal government can do to help Canadians today is to be mindful of our responsibility not to pour fuel on the fire of inflation, not to force the Bank of Canada to raise rates even higher. The weather forecast for much of this country is calling for bitter cold, and the economic forecast is just as chilly. High inflation, high interest rates, a slow-growing economy, and looming concerns of a global recession are just some of the economic challenges facing Canada today. Now, moments ago, Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland wrapped up a meeting with her provincial counterparts and territorial counterparts as well. On today's agenda items, one of them was discussing how to stay competitive with President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. Part of that legislation allocates over 300 billion U.S. dollars in investments and tax credits into America's transition to greener energy. So did Canada's finance ministers come out of today's meeting with a competitive counter? Let's bring in Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey. Welcome, Minister. Thanks for taking the time to join us. I wanted to start off by asking you if you did come out of today's meeting confident that Canada can rise to meet the challenge 
proposed by the U.S.'s Inflation Reduction Act. Well, good to be with you, Mike. And first off, you know, it's good to be meeting in person again after a couple of years of COVID with uh, our counterparts across the country and with the uh, the federal fin- finance minister. And it's uh, it's always good when you're talking. And so, so I'll just start with that. Uh, of course, uh, you know, what the U.S. administration is doing um, is uh, what they've done in Washington will require a federal response. And so it's a, f- a federal uh, nation-to-nation sort of conversation what I would say is this, and I heard this from all our counterparts today, is that we've been making investments uh, already to to attract capital into our respective provinces. And we've done, uh, just in the last two years, uh, just in some sectors, a $16 billion of investment that's come in. In some cases, we partnered with the federal government. It is definitely an area that we'll continue to focus on. Um, and I will say another area that we talked about uh, as as we look to attract capital and get things done in Canada is our critical minerals up in the Ring of Fire in the far north. And we, we definitely talked about how the federal government can help uh, with the impact assessments, can help with processing uh, funding, and can help with uh, building infrastructure. We're committed to build infrastructure. So it's always good when we're talking. Yeah, and a lot of that talking will also be about Tuesday's meeting between the premiers and the prime minister. A lot of talk on that one. The uh, federal government saying they're willing to boost the health transfers to the provinces, but with conditions. So in your meeting today, did you get a sense of how much money the feds are willing to spend on upping the health transfer? We did not talk about that, and I think that's going to be uh, tabled on next Tuesday with the prime minister and the premiers. You know, what, what we did talk about is... I certainly said that uh, we're, we're grateful that after two years of asking for this meeting, uh, that it's happening on Tuesday. Um, you know, Canadians are looking at us to get it done. Uh, we here in Ontario, that's, uh, that's something we talk about. Let's just get things done. Uh, when we sit at a table, when we work together, we'll get it done. And, and you know, I think Canadians and Ontarians are, are looking, you know, that we continue to collaborate um, on things like health care. I want to make sure that... Uh, and we want to make sure that whatever agreement that uh, is put on the table, that it's uh, sustainable. And, and we've put our ask on the table, and now it's their, their time to show us uh, what their response is. What's your flexibility on that? And I ask that because I know that all provinces wanted that health transfer up to 35%. Are you, in Ontario, willing to be flexible on that ask, or is that the financial red line? It's hard to, hard to deal in hypotheticals when you haven't even seen... Uh, what they're going to put on the table. You know, we, we've been very clear. I know, the but that's the ask from Ontario and all the provinces, Minister. But that's the ask, and they, we have to wait to see their response. So, but if it's not 35%, is that a no deal from Ontario? You know, again, I, Mike, I'm not going to get into hypotheticals, but what I can tell you that our premier has shown leadership in saying, let's get to the table. You know, we've talked about data, for example. Uh, that, that that's an element we'd be willing to talk about, you know, and how we can share data and how we can work together. Because I think Ontarians and Canadians want us to work together. They don't want to wait a year for surgeries. They don't want to wait a year for hips and knees. We need to get more primary care into the local communities. We need to do so much more, hire more nurses, more personal support workers, uh, work with uh, credentials across the province, and uh, people are trained in other jurisdictions outside of Canada. Uh, we've got so much more uh, that we, we can do together. We're doing a lot of things already here in Ontario. 
Our Minister of Health just yesterday announced a series of, uh, of improvements and, and innovations uh, like our independent health facilities so we can get the backlog of surgeries off. So that's, that's what we're talking about. I'm an optimist and I'm hopeful that uh, Tuesday's meeting will lead to uh, some good constructive results for not just Ontarians but all Canadians. Just before I leave it here, I wanted to ask you specifically about labor, because as you had mentioned, healthcare workers is one of the biggest issues when it comes to the healthcare um, sector. So, did a plan emerge from the meeting today with your provincial counterparts on how to address the labor shortages, or is it going to be one of those things where it is every province for themselves and we could see poaching between provinces? You know, it's so important. Uh, I won't go into details of the discussion, but I think everyone agrees that uh, coordination is a better way to go. Um, and uh, the as of right uh, that we've launched here in Ontario, which means that we'll accept credentials from any healthcare worker outside of Ontario in, into Ontario from across the province and the territories. So all, all these things are what I think Ontarians and Canadians want us to get things done, move forward, do it in a way that we don't, we can get past the uh, fiscal challenges that we have. Ontario has been investing uh, unprecedented historic amounts of money into our health care system. And I think that's what the people of Ontario and I think the people of Canada want us to do. Minister, we're going to have to leave it there. We really appreciate you taking the time. Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey. Thanks so much again. Appreciate it. Coming up, we catch you up on other political news that you need to know with The List. Power Play will be right back. Stay right there. Welcome back to Power Play. This is The List, what's happening in politics today. Our first order of business is really to try to find a partner who can help us preserve the jobs, preserve the technology and the intellectual property. Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne reacting to the news that Quebec-based COVID-19 vaccine manufacturer Medicago is shutting down. Federal government poured $173 million into the company in the race to develop COVID-19 vaccines. Health Canada did authorize Medicago's vaccine a year ago after the vast majority of Canadians were already vaccinated. In a blow to distribution, the company's vaccine was initially rejected by the World Health Organization because of the corporation's ties to Philip Morris Tobacco Company. After making dozens of amendments, the Senate has passed the Liberals' online streaming bill, Bill C-11. The bill would update Canada's broadcasting rules to reflect online streaming giants such as Netflix, YouTube, and Spotify. And it would also require them to contribute to Canadian content and make it accessible to users in Canada or face steep penalties. Yesterday, Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez told Vashi Capellos he hopes the House of Commons will pass the bill very soon after it reviews the Senate's changes. And tonight, a CTV National News special explores the plight of Afghan refugees seeking resettlement in Canada. Ottawa had its promise to bring at least 40,000 vulnerable Afghans to this country by the end of this year. But so far, less than 30,000 have arrived. CTV's Genevieve Beauchemin traveled to Pakistan, where an estimated 3 million Afghan refugees are stranded with no status. Pakistan is such a bustling country. It's 
a place where Afghan refugees have come over the years. I am a woman. I am not safe here with my two children. It's the fear of the Taliban that has pushed so many people into this country. And some of them live here in dire circumstances. They have no food, no water. So you would get the water where? Yes, uh, from a mosque. From the mosque? Yes. So you walk? It's uh, 15 minutes away from here. This, for many of them, that was supposed to be a stopover. My kids always ask me, like, Dad, when are we going to Canada? But it's become a place where they've been for months and months in limbo. That special is right here tonight on CTV News Channel at 9 Eastern and streaming on Crave. Well, coming up, the federal government walks back their controversial firearms bill amendments. Does this pivot undermine the government's tough talk on guns? Our Friday panel of strategists will dig into that next here on Power Play. My conservative team and I have forced Justin Trudeau into a temporary but humiliating climb down today. Trudeau desperately wanted to ban hunting rifles. Uh, if we take a look at uh, gun companies potentially using loopholes uh, to find a way to create um, uh, assault-style weapons that they can get back on the streets and evade the law. I mean, you know, we saw that in uh, tobacco. Every time you created uh, legislation to block it from getting to kids, they would find loopholes. So it's incredibly important that we achieve that. And what we've also acknowledged, it's incredibly important that we respect hunters and that we uh, make sure that we're not affecting uh, uh, folks who who are, who are hunters and their lives. An expression of regret from the government over their controversial amendments to Bill C-21, the Liberals' new gun control legislation. Our government House Leader Mark Holland there said his government's consultation process wasn't sufficient. So does admitting consultations were not sufficient undermine the government's gun control policies? And can the government bounce back from this firearms fallout? Let's take this to our panel of strategists. Greg McEachern, he's advised municipal officials and provincial and federal ministers, and he's worked in media advance for two national election campaigns. Greg does lean liberal. Larissa Waller from G&T and Company. She previously served as the head of communications for Ontario Premier Doug Ford and Anne McGrath is the NDP National Director. Thank you all for being here on this frigid Friday. Greg, so the government has positioned itself as being tough on guns. Does what happened today undermine what they are trying to do, and can they continue on with this, or do they have to scrap C-21 at this point? We talked about this in the fall, and I remember you said, you know, there were some Conservative and NDP MPs that were upset, and I countered with that there are some Liberal MPs that were upset with the amendment as well. So, uh, you know, th this is one of those things where, you know, we say we want MPs to be, you know, free-spoken, but when someone does, we accuse them of being, you know, uh, you know uh, off course. Um, this is what most people wanted. I, you know, like I was listening to Mr. Pulliver's words there and wondering if he was actually happy with the result because, you know, the Liberals actually did listen to, you know, NDP rural MPs like Charlie Angus um, on this. I think um, 
you know, if I was the government, I would take a look back in the fall and why did this happen? They're mm -hmm. saying the lack of consultation. I remember at the time asking, trying to prepare for this, for the, for the panel that night and not really feeling that I was getting a lot of um, clear answers right. about, you know, what is the problem you're trying to solve here? So, you know, it's a minor, it's a minority pro parliament that did its job and the amendment's gone and I think that's good. Marissa, I'm going to bring you in here. Does this withdrawal of the amendments give farmers, hunters and rural Canadians confidence that the government is actually listening to their concerns over this gun control legislation? Mike, I don't, I don't think so. You said something in the intro to this, to this uh, set here and you said that this government was tough on guns. And I think that you're right. I think that they're tough on guns and I wish they were tough on crime which means that they'd have to tackle guns and gangs, they'd have to tackle a leaky border, um, and they don't seem to be prioritizing that. I also listened to the minister's, um, Minister Mendicino's clip earlier today, and you know he said things like he's committed to getting these guns off the streets, um, he's committed to the amendments, he wants to bring the bill back. Um, and he sort of kept going between victims and then you know, hunters and First Nation communities. I think everybody can agree that we have a violence problem, that we have a gang problem across Canada, not just in big cities. I think the difference comes with the solutions. And, you know, the, the minister kept talking about it's an emotional problem. What I didn't hear him talking about is data and facts. And if you look at data and facts, I think that that would that should push the government towards focusing more on guns and more on a leaky border. And it sounds like this was the right move to walk it back and to go back and now consult. But, I mean, can you explain how this government says that it didn't do the consultation thing right when that's basically all this government has been about, consulting people? It's been obvious from the, from the beginning that, that there, were, there was a big problem with this amendment. Let, let's remember that, first of all, this is a, a very important legislation uh, with broad agreement on, 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 the, on the bill itself minus the amendment, the, the, the uh, handgun freeze. And it could have been passed uh, back in December, November, December. Uh, but instead, we are now here at the beginning of February, walking back at an amendment that was flawed, that was botched, that was, that was a last minute, that was incredibly sweeping, that violated the rights of, of, of uh, indigenous, indigenous Canadians, uh, that violated the rights of rural, and, uh, rural Canadians and, and Northern Canadians. It really was so badly handled. And it was obvious from the day that it happened. It was, you know, it was introduced after second reading. It, so the whole thing was badly handled. And um, once that became obvious, which I think was almost immediately, that's when the amendment should have been withdrawn. And they, I think there was no choice here. It was so obvious uh, how, how badly it had been handled. They had no choice but to take the amendment out. And now I think they have to uh, go back and do the work to make sure that uh, if they want to deal with assault weapons, which I think is a, a good idea, uh, that you deal with it in a way that actually respects, uh, uh, respects the, the rights of, of people who uh, legitimately need to use guns for their way of life uh, in Indigenous communities or for their way of life in many rural and northern communities. I've got about two and a half minutes left, and we're changing topic for a second here, Greg. We had the finance ministers, the federal and provincial finance ministers meeting today ahead of that highly anticipated meeting with the prime minister and the premiers next week. Feds have signaled that they're willing to boost health transfers at this point. But given the fiscal situation we're in, do you think we are going to get there in terms of a deal, but also in terms of landing on a number? Well, I, I think we will... 
uh, obviously we'll have to wait and see. Um, you know, I, I think today the finance ministers, from what I'm told, really tried to press um, the deputy prime minister, uh, Minister Freeland, about numbers, and she said she was not going to steal to close thunder. Um, you, you know, the health ministers will see. The agenda is still being worked on, and, mm-hmm. and you know, in my kind of cynical sort of way, I was like, you know, should they pencil in a 2 p.m. drama and Danielle Smith is going to walk out and storm out or there'll be this? Because we've seen that before with other um, with uh, other health ministers, mm-hmm. for example. So I, I think what you're going to see from the federal government is they're not going to go in shy. They have to show, they have to pony up with a significant amount of money. But what you're probably also going to see is that the prime minister say, I want to see some data. I want to see some, what is our, our, our right. value um, for what we're getting, you know, the, the return on investment. Um, so, and what tracking, are we going to be able to share information between provinces, things like that? I think there'll be a strong pushback from the Prime Minister. Let's try and squeeze everybody in. We're going to ask you to keep it short. Larissa, the Conservatives have accused the government pandemic spending of contributing to inflation. So would the Conservatives be supportive of significantly Im- boosting that federal health transfer? I think that everybody agrees that healthcare across the country in every province is broken and that every province needs more money, but every province also needs to make sort of structural changes to how they deliver healthcare. So I think more money is, is part of the solution, but there also have to be other changes as well. And Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Freeland today said that she reiterated this need for fiscal restraint. Do you think she's trying to lower expectations ahead of next week? Well, I'm sure she is, but the, the, the fact is that there does need to be a, a, an incredible infusion of, uh, of federal money into the health transfers. I'm very happy to see that the meeting is going ahead. I think it will end up still being bilateral agreements, but we need an increase in the amount of money that the federal government puts into health care. We need the provinces to actually deliver on the uh, health care outcomes, uh, which I think is going to be incredibly important here. And from my point of view, I think that they should be doing everything they can to strengthen public health care and to stop the creeping privatization. Anne McGrath, Larissa Waller, Greg McEachran, I asked you guys to speed it up. You did. Thank you so much. Have yourself a great weekend. Coming up, our Friday press gallery will dole out their political plays and misplays of the week. Stay with Power Play. We'll be right back for that fun Friday segment. Welcome back. It's Friday, and yes, we're all back at it again together. I'm trying to throw these guys off, make them giggle before this, but it doesn't sound like it's going to happen. Oh, it did happen. So Canada's first special representative on combating Islamophobia was appointed in the middle of a firestorm, and a man is taking the federal government to court over restrictions that he says make him feel like a second-class citizen. So who scored the political wins this past week in politics? Here they are, the press gallery. You know them, you love them. CTV News senior digital parliamentary reporter Rachel Aiello, Toronto Star columnist Susan Delacourt, and our special guest is from Searchlight Strategy Group, Greg Weston. Thank you all for being here. Greg, I'm going to start with you. What's yours? Uh, kind of a <clears throat> remarkable thing, having watched this for a few decades. Um, had 49 public servants fired for... Um, taking CERB payments while they were actually still working for the government. Mm -hmm. Not just the government, but actually the department that was handing out the money in the first place. 
Uh, I hate to rejoice in anybody losing their job, but seriously, <laughs> uh, someday, sometime, I knew if I stayed here long enough, we would see a public servant actually get fired for doing the wrong thing, and right. they did. So that's the, my play of the week. Yeah. Rachel, what do you think of this one? Well, I mean, I think the play also goes to the department, right, for actually looking into this, because what we've heard from the CRA is they don't think it's worth it to look into some of the wage subsidy mm -hmm. uh, benefits that went out improperly. So at least it's good to say probably the bare minimum for the government to be looking into this. But it does kind of make your mind real of any department to know what the rules were and who was eligible. It was the people who wrote the program in the first place. So, yeah, uh, interesting story for you sure. You would think that they may have known, but, I mean, Susan, what kind of impact does this have on the public service? Oh, um, I'm not sure. I, I can't get over, I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that all the political parties took advantage of the wage subsidy when um, it was there, and quite shamelessly, actually, even as they were denouncing, you know, possible... Inflationary spending, yeah. Inflationary spending, that every political party uh, took it as well, too. So... I don't know about the effect on the public service. Yeah. There are so many other things this week have had effects on the public service. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, but it, it's, it's an interesting development. Yeah. We could, we, could, we could fire the political parties. That would make a, like a great week. Isn't that what elections are about, Greg? <laughs> People don't see them that way, but that's what they're supposed to be. Anyways, Rachel, you've got a play to hand out this yeah, week. Yeah, so I'm going to give my play to the man who is taking the federal government to court mm. over a policy that he thinks is discriminatory. Uh, and this, of course, is the donor restrictions for gay sperm donors in this country. Uh, he's pointing out that he should be able to donate like everyone else, questioning what the science is. Um, I think we got a bit of a clip here of him talking about why this was important. Why I decided to take this to court is uh, because of that feeling of discrimination. Um, you get that like the, that rule uh, is so arbitrary uh, that it makes you wonder whether it's really for any safety reason or whether it's your gayness that is uh, the problem and that's why you're undesirable uh, as a donor. So look, I think this case is challenging the constitutionality of this rule, raises a couple really interesting questions. It just takes a lot of courage to be someone to decide, I'm going to put my face and name out there on this and challenge the federal government, let alone on a topic that, as I've learned this week, can make some people a little uncomfortable when you talk about it. But it's an important issue. It affects a lot of people. But I think this is one of those conversations that could easily get dismissed or overlooked. It's not the most hot political story for sure. Yeah. Uh, so that's why it's getting my play this week. Also, I think there's going to be some political dynamics to play out on this. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in the blood ban case said that was discriminatory and wrong. We tried to ask ministers this week if they thought the same about this, and they were non-committal. So we'll see how this unfolds. Greg, I want to ask you about that. But first, I don't get a play <laughs> on this panel, but I'm giving mine to Rachel Aiello for breaking this story and for doing your first <laughs> national TV story on it. Greg, Thank I wanted you. to ask you about this, though, to Rachel's point and how, you know, this isn't the first time that Health Canada sort of gotten caught up in something like this. Well, no, I mean, <clears throat> we all, I'm, I'm sure at some point in our careers, and certainly um, Rachel did a great job with this one, but... Um, Susan, the the whole blood uh, right. scandal fiasco gave put a chill on on just about everything. I mean, everybody trusted that you know the blood was was safe and mm -hmm. and it caused uh, a massive problems. So I think we're still coming back from that. And look, after the pandemic, let the science do the talking. Take yeah. the politics out. Take the prejudices out. What does the science tell us? I don't know what the science tells us uh, about um, sperm donation. Uh, Rachel says there's, there's a body of science there. I think 
eventually the, the government will just follow the science. Sounds like you want to get in, Rachel? <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, I think we'll see how the, the case plays out. Health Canada is going to have to make submissions in court and, and justify whether this policy should stay in place or not. I don't want to weigh in one way or the other on how that's going to unfold, yeah. but certainly in the blood ban case, the evidence was there to lift it. Uh, and so that's why this question is being raised now, if the same could be followed suit, and so that all donors are screened based off of their risk factors and not right. just blanketly because of who they are. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you the political ramifications of this, the Liberals not really answering the question on this. Susan. Well, that's not unusual. Welcome to Parliament Hill, Mike. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit about things they put in for security. You know? mm. And once you've, you've, you've limited people's security or once you've done a ban like this, they are notoriously hard to untangle. Right. And we saw that, as Greg said, with the blood ban as well, too. And I'm not surprised they're not answering questions on this for a while because it's, um, it's, it's hard and it's difficult. And it's, as Rachel says, it's fraught with, with politics. And it's before the courts, so I understand yeah. a bit of that yeah. as well. But I'm sure it'll be in the next Liberal campaign platform. We've got about two minutes, Susan, for your play, but I'm told it's got some conditions on it. I had a play that turned into a misplay. Okay. So I actually was very enthusiastic and optimistic when... Uh, Yves-Francois Blanchette, the bloc leader, met with the new uh, government representative to combat Islamophobia. Mm. It's a mouthful. Um, I, I actually thought at the beginning of that meeting, that's how this is supposed to work. Right. And then I think we have a clip about this. Then it turned into Thursday. And I, I think we do have a clip yeah, of let's have Mr. A look. Blanchette. Uh... And there's been an association of... Uh, between the Bill 21 and Islamophobia, all of these things put together, whatever her personal qualities might be, disqualify her for the function. This is a bad choice by the Prime Minister, who, making such a choice, uh, kind of uh, destroyed the possible credibility of, of the function. So, so that get my, gets my prize also for one of the most condescending scrums I have ever yeah. seen. It was uh, he was going to teach her a lesson. Yeah. Uh, she had more to learn. Uh, he, I work for the Toronto Star. He slammed the Toronto, the city of Toronto, gratuitously several times. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I thought, well, we we thought there was going to be bridge building here, but we forgot there's politics here too. Yeah. We've got thirty seconds left, Greg. <laughs> Well, we appoint someone uh, as uh, the person who's going to fight Islamophobia in this country, and she's not allowed to talk about Quebec. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. This whole thing has been kind of a, a surreal uh, performance. <laughs> and frankly, I think um, Blanchette and the rest of them owe her a big apology more than anything else. 10 seconds, Rachel. I think it's worth noting she's still technically not on the job, so she had these meetings this week without getting paid or having staff to support her. So I think that just is another little thing to note. Well noted. Rachel Aiello, Susan Delacourt, Greg Weston, thank you guys so much. Have a great weekend. That is your Power Play Week in Politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. The show will be back right here with Ashley Capellos on Monday, and we're going to hand things over for a colleague at CTV News Channel, Angie Seth. 